This is the Soil Sense podcast where we believe that building healthier soils is not just a prescription, but rather a pursuit. It's a journey that requires collaboration, curiosity, and communication among farmers, researchers, agronomists, consultants, and extension. You're going to hear their stories and discover how and why they're working together to make sense out of what's happening in the soil. there. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode of Soil Sense. I'm your host, Tim Hamrich. A bit alarmingly, in many of our cropping systems, the soil is becoming more and more acidic over time. This is happening to some quicker than others. But a soil with a pH of 5, just as an example, is a hundred times more acidic than a neutral pH of 7. And as these soils become more and more acidic, they can start to have big problems with things like nutrient availability, nutrient cycling, and ultimately have an impact on yield. And they're likely to get worse. On the show today, we have Dr. Mark Liebig, who's with the USDA ARS located in Mandan, North Dakota, and Ryan Beto, Extension Cropping Systems Specialist at the NDSU Dickinson Research Extension Center. These two appeared on a panel at our DIRT workshop back in December, and the audio for today's episode comes from that panel. Now, I'll give you just a quick warning here. The recording from the panel came through with a bit of an echo, and I was able to get rid of most of that echo, but in doing so, it warped some of the audio a little bit. So the sound quality on this episode isn't quite up to our normal standard, but I'll tell you the content is so important and so valuable that I think it's definitely still worth your time to listen. Mark and Ryan are going to talk about what's causing this acidification, some of the important sampling considerations, uh, ways to fix these problems, and ways to slow the acidification from happening in the first place. First, though, I asked Mark to give us a sense for how widespread this problem is geographically. Looking at the literature, it seems like it's it's becoming a a more widespread problem. I mean, obviously, some soils that lack the buffering capacity uh, say like like a lot of a lot of the soils that we have in the southwest part of, of North Dakota, they don't have the buffering capacity and soil acidification and can get real really quick. We have acidification issues that are pretty rampant. Where I was doing my work in eastern Nebraska, of course, you know, mostly continuous corn with uh, fairly intensive in application rates and uh, and really highly buffered soils, but we're still seeing you know seeing acidification in those areas. And it's you you would think with with our soils here in, in the Dakotas where we're just naturally buffered and they're fairly young geologically that we would we would have some additional time. And that, that doesn't seem to necessarily be the case. I think this acidification is pretty pretty widespread. So we uh, we need to really keep it in mind. Uh, but if you look at particularly some recent meta-analyses in, in the peer-reviewed literature, it's pretty clear that you know we've, we've got a widespread global issue with respect to acidification. And so there's a need to you know obviously understand its sources, but also identify some effective interventions regionally and, and by production system. And we're going to talk about some of those interventions here today. Uh, but first, let's talk about the root causes of this problem. I mean, what is actually causing this acidification to happen in the first place? Yeah, so you, you really kind of have to look at all different sources of acidification, basically all your sources of hydrogen ions. And there's some acidification that's sort of background, okay? So our, our rainwater, that's acidic, around 5.5 pH. Also, the, the mineralization of organic matter, that, you know, carbonic acid, that is also another source of hydrogen ions. But 
those two contributions are relatively small. And actually, they play out over much longer time spans in order to see a measurable change. Even, you know, we're talking hundreds of years in order to see those effects of those two factors. Where we're seeing the big changes is where we're intensively managing, where we have nitrogen being applied, where we're not maybe necessarily efficiently using the applied nitrogen. And and it can also be exacerbated where we're uh, pretty aggressive with our residue removal. So the the residue that could be returned uh, and could be returning, you know, cations back into the surface soil depths, that's that's being pulled away. And so that you lose some of that buffering capacity, the hydrogen ions predominate, and then your, your pH drops. So that's a great explanation of what's happening on a technical level. But what about on a more practical level? How are farming practices helping or maybe exacerbating these issues? These sorts of issues sort of align themselves with the availability of uh, nitrogen for growth of uh, agricultural crops. So you, have, you can go back to the Haber-Bosch process, all right? So we can maybe you know, take that back uh, you know, a little over 100 years. But as our production systems have intensified, you know, to some degree, you know, some of our conservation practices, such as no-till, actually make the acidification issue maybe a, a little more severe because you're applying the nitrogen in the same location every year and you get this stratification. And so where we're seeing the really severe acidification is, is right there at the near surface. And that has a lot to do with the fact that, particularly in drier regions, it's to our benefit to use no-till for a lot of you know, soil health-related reasons. But with that can come this issue of decreasing pH. And so we we have to find ways to manage it. Ryan Beto, also joining us here today, says in order to effectively manage this pH, it's important to make sure that you're sampling for it effectively. Normal sampling techniques may not pick up the pH problem because they're too far down. So he recommends sampling at a shallower depth. Yeah, I definitely prefer a zero to three and a three to six. If you're looking at your your bigger soil samples, you're really diluting that pH and you're not really seeing what, what's actually there, right? With that zero to three, I think you want to break it down by how you've been applying your fertilizer. If you're doing surface applications, you're more likely to see that acidity in the top couple inches. But if you are putting a hydrous down where it's a little bit deeper, you're likely to see that low pH a bit deeper down. So if we are sampling correctly and getting this pH tested, How low is too low? In other words, when should we start to be concerned with the results we're getting? So it depends on how you've been sampling. Uh, If you're doing a 0 to 6 or 0 to 12 and it's already showing that it's below 6, you probably have some bigger issues than you realize. If you have been doing 0 to 3 and you've really been pinpointing um, those issues, you know, 5.5 is where you start to see issues. When it starts to really become a problem is when it gets below 5. And the thing is, the stuff really can snowball out of control. Some guys might not realize that they have it, and they're seeing, you know, reduced stands in these areas. So maybe they're putting more nitrogen down to try to fix it or something because they're not looking too closely at the pH. And then it gets even worse. So in a case like this one where we notice our pH dropping, what can we do? Well, Ryan recommends to many of the farmers that have this issue in his area of southwest North Dakota to apply lime. We've got some great agronomists in this part of the state, and uh, we've been trying a lot of different things. The best fix is really liming. Uh, That's really what we want people to do with this issue. But there are some kind of Band-Aid approaches to get by uh, in the situation. So there is some 
variety selection within crops like wheat. Uh, Lanning out of Montana has uh, a gene that has aluminum tolerance, and we're trying to find some other varieties out there and doing some variety trials and that kind of stuff. There is some work out of both Oklahoma and Montana where you put phosphorus in the furrow on small grains, and uh, they're looking at about 50 pounds of phosphorus. Gets a yield in Durham similar to that of a, a limed field where you have a more neutral pH. So uh, the phosphorus is able to tie up or bind to the aluminum, so you're not seeing the aluminum toxicity. Because when we're looking at the pH, what we're really looking at is how those different nutrients become available. And things like aluminum and manganese become toxic, right? The aluminum's already there, but it's not soluble until the pH drops. So the damage we're really seeing in a lot of these crops is from aluminum. So if we can tie that up somehow, that can kind of get you by. Uh, but there's a lot of other issues that come from low pH, uh, your biological activity in the soil, how herbicides uh, interact with the soil. So there's a lot that plays with the pH. So ideally, fix the pH to start with. And that's with lime applications. You want to have a smaller particle size so that it can interact with the soil quicker. Things like, um, you know, there's, there's some pelletized lime that it's very easy to apply but it's a little bit spendier than some of the other options. It usually has a more standard particle size, so it's going to work quicker, but you're going to pay for it. So that'll work. Uh, beet lime, it works well, but you have to worry about bringing in uh, weed seeds. But I, I do like beet lime personally. But if you're not set up to spread it properly, you can have some issues where it clogs up your spreader. It can be difficult to get a consistent rate out there. There's water treatment lime as well. That is... Uh, Pretty heavy in moisture, so you have to let it sit out for a while and can have some issues as well. Again, you want to make sure that you're looking at the amount of actual lime in that product. Beet lime is, you know, 60 to 70% lime, so your actual rate of beet lime will be higher than your rate of lime is. So another option that Mark and I have been kind of talking about is if you have a dead tree row or you're kind of renovating a tree row, Ash is a good liming agent too. You know, maybe if it's just a small spot in the field or something like that, pile up a bunch of uh, logs there and make sure that you're safe with your fire uh, <laughs> fire habits. So liming, while expensive, can be one way to address the problem. But it's also important to be proactive with ways that can slow the acidification in the first place. Ryan says species selection, for example, can help. So plants themselves aren't really going to change your pH to a point where it'll completely turn things around from an acidic soil. But if you put species that can handle a low pH environment, uh, you can slow the process because it is a natural process in many of these soils. I think trying to reduce the amount of nitrogen you're putting down, uh, trying to put out some grasses. Again, like Mark said, you know, if you're removing material, you're removing a lot of those uh, cations. So you look at things like oats, uh, wheat, certain varieties. It's important to remember that certain varieties of certain species are more tolerant than others. It's a major issue that affects many different crops. If you can't put lime down, maybe you can grow blueberries or cranberries or something. That can handle acidity pretty well. But there's going to be some yield loss because you're just seeing that aluminum in there, and that's going to uh, reduce your root growth. And it actually first starts to show up as like a phosphorus deficiency because the aluminum, you start to see a tie up of phosphorus in these situations. So um, the impact of, of the nutrients within that soil is going to impact a pretty wide range of crops. And it might not be as apparent in some crops. Your warm season grasses can handle it better than most. Um, things like durum, barley don't do super well. Safflower does not do well at all. 
So your legumes are going to get hit twice as hard. You have some options, but it kind of limits your rotation. Mark adds that another way to slow acidification is to consider diversifying your crop rotation. Culturally, things that we might be able to do to to hold the line on pH. And, and Ryan said, you know, if, if it's an issue where you can, you know, you can spot treat it and it's very focused, then, you know, going with perennial where you're not having to apply nitrogen is a good way to just hold things in place. The other thing that I think we should probably think about is, is crop rotation diversification. Okay. As is sequencing crops in a way to be able to make the most efficient use of, of the nitrogen that's in the soil. And so it, it's taking advantage of synergies uh, you know, between crops from one year to the next. And I, I think that's part of the reason why we're seeing sort of a less acidification under a dynamic rotation at the research farm there outside of Mandan is that we're, you know, we're sequencing those crops in a way to take advantage of synergisms from one year to the next. And and we, we don't have to apply as much in. And, and some of that in is coming by way of, of legumes, which we have to be mindful they can also create acidification themselves, but that release is slower and of the nitrogen is slower. And then we have an increased chance of being able to capture that the subsequent year. So I'll leave it at that. There's some of the things that we're seeing that's really interesting with sunflower that maybe we can touch upon later, but uh, I just wanted to get that crop rotation component in to follow on Ryan's comment. Okay, we're going to get back to that sunflower conversation here in just a minute. But first, let's hear more about what Mark just said about legumes. He said they can create acidification, but he also said that they can help slow it over time. So I asked Ryan and Mark both to weigh in with some clarification. It's still going to happen, but it's going to be at a much lower rate than your anhydrous fertilizers. So yeah, you're reducing the amount that you're acidifying it, but overall it's still an acidification event, I believe. Absolutely. It is, but it's not as severe. I mean, you have to remember those those nodules that are fixing nitrogen, those will decompose and there's a lot of uh, organic in. Uh, so that's nitrogen that I always think about as sort of ammonium in. It's at the, sort of the top of the nitrogen cycle. And as it begins to get uh, uh, used by microorganisms in the soil, it's going to get converted to nitrate and some uh, hydrogen ions are going to get spun off into the solution. But it's, it's not as, as severe, it's not as extensive as, say, an, an application of a synthetic source at a high rate. And so, and again, and also that decomposition, that availability of that nitrate is also happening at a, at a slightly slower level. It's not coming at, as one big pulse. And so that, you know, yes, there's acidification, but there's, there's a higher chance that the subsequent crop is going to be able to capture and take up that available end from the previous legume and therefore sort of counteract that acidifying effect. Okay, let's go back to Mark's earlier cliffhanger about his sunflower research. He's done some long-term work about the impacts this crop can have on acidification as part of a rotation. I did uh, uh, sampling on, on 15 years of cropping system effects on a number of soil uh, chemical properties and very interestingly found that we had an annual crop rotation that had sunflower as part of the sequence. And what we observed is that after 15 years, we actually observed that the exchangeable calcium increased where the sunflower was a part of the rotation. It wasn't a large increase, but it did increase, but it only increased where the nitrogen levels were sort of low to medium. So we were being pretty efficient, maybe, you know, not, certainly not over applying, but really dialing in the, that end level so we didn't have it in excess. We completely lost out on that gain of exchangeable calcium where we had the high nitrogen rate. So it just got flooded with acidification and 
flush those cations out of the near surface depth. So it's not a real rigorous result, but I, it was one that I, really was interesting to me that, in fact, you know, maybe we can think about root architecture. And, and here's a crop that has a tap root. And, you know, we talk about lime and applying it, and that is going to be a necessary intervention. But, you know, really, we've got all kinds of lime two feet below the soil surface in the form of just the, the calcic horizon. There's a lot there. Maybe we need to think about how we can utilize our crop rotations to it's, it's not going to turn around the acidification issue, but maybe it'll, it'll help slow it. And so we can kind of keep things under control. So I think that's where that, that diversification issue can come into place. I'm, I'm saying it's basically perhaps acting as a cation pump and you have those, you know, they're, they're basically, uh, they become part of the plant. That plant then after harvest, it decomposes, goes back to the near surface. And after 15 years, then yes, you begin to see an effect. It's a small one. You know, this is how these things change. It's, it's very subtle. Like many of the topics we talk about here on this show, there's just not going to be one answer to slowing or stopping soil acidification. It's going to be an effort that uses multiple tools in the toolbox. And it all starts, Mark says, with knowing exactly what you're dealing with. Uh, yeah, I think these cultural practices you know, sort of play upon sort of the natural cycles, and we have to be sensitive to those subtleties because... Uh, we can use them to our advantage. And if you can marry the best of the cultural practices with the, you know, the very best technology to put nitrogen on at the right time, at the right place, at the right rate, then we can go a long ways to slowing this acidification trend in our region. And then finally, I sent a link on this whole thing about soil depth. It's so, so very important that if you think you have a pH issue, make sure you dial in your depth increment just right. Because if you go with a deeper depth increment, you're effectively diluting the, the soil pH result, meaning that it'll be, you, you could be have a very low pH, but if you sample through the, like the top three inches down to a six or even 12 inches, you're going to get a completely different story. And that would affect your application rate of the amount of lime that you would put on. So, so it seems like it's a lot of trouble to sample like zero to three inches, but I think if you think pH is an issue, you know, strongly, you know, follow what Ryan said. I think that's something that's worth the added expense so you know exactly what you're dealing with. All right, we'll let Ryan have the final word here on today's episode with a few parting comments about applying lime. Yeah, uh, so when we talk about applying lime, it's important to remember that the important part of that calcium carbonate is the carbonate. And that's really what's changing that pH drastically. Those base cations are very important. But for that kind of large change that we want to see, we really want to see that, that carbonate. And that will then kind of turn into CO2 as it, as it goes down. It's important to remember that gypsum, that may have calcium, but that's not going to change your pH in a major way. The sulfur, the sulfate in it, actually, I saw a few things that shows that the sulfate can actually bind up to the aluminum, uh, but it's a fairly small amount. Um, there's a question in the Q&A about putting lime in furrow. Uh, I did a trial with that this past year uh, in soybean. We saw a slight yield bump. We did some pretty extensive tissue sampling. We saw an average of, like, we dropped from 45 parts per million of aluminum down to 30. So it's still more aluminum than you want to see in the plant, but it, it did reduce it at 75 pounds of lime in furrow. There was no difference between 75 and 100, and there's no difference between 0 and 50 pounds. So if you're putting a lime down, I'd rather you put down a lot of lime on the surface than a small amount in furrow. But, you know, maybe you're stopping some of the aluminum toxicity and giving it a slightly better environment to start root growth. But I'm still a little skeptical on that. 
there are definitely some band-aid approaches out there. I'm going to look a little bit further into gypsum to see if there is something to that sulfate tying up the aluminum. The more I look into it, the more I realize that we're not the only ones facing this issue. So see what other people are doing out there. So if you have any questions, feel free to contact me. And thanks for having me on. Well, thank you very much to both Ryan Beto and Mark Liebig for contributing so much to this panel. It's a bit alarming to hear about the severity of some of these pH issues and the challenges of slowing down acidification. If you want to learn more about this topic, make sure you visit the NDSU Soil Health YouTube channel. You can watch this panel in its entirety and also see some videos about this work in action. Thanks as well to our sponsors of Soil Sense, the North Dakota Corn Council, the North Dakota Wheat Commission, the North Harvest Dry Bean Association, the North Dakota Barley Council, and Anheuser-Busch. If you're getting value from this podcast, we'd love it if you'd leave us a rating and review on iTunes and share your favorite episode on Twitter with the hashtag SoilSense. We'll be back with another great episode next week.